The house sat on a corner in one of the student neighborhoods, and we would go there a lot. The place was well known for its parties. Several hundred college kids drinking beer in red solo cups and peeing in the neighbor's yard. A typical Saturday night in a college town. My partner and I rolled on the possible structure fire call right away. It was about three in the morning and things had slowed down. The address was familiar, but I couldn't place it with that call type. When I came around the corner and saw the party house, I knew it was going to be bad. The entire front of the building was fully engulfed in flames. Black smoke rolled from under the eaves and the entire front of the house had fire shooting dozens of feet into the air. The bad part? I knew there were six college kids living in that house and if they were still in there, I wasn't sure they'd be getting out. My partner and I ran for the front door but gave up on that immediately. We couldn't get within 10 feet of it. The fire was too hot. We made our way around towards the back. The flames weren't as bad back there but the smoke was pouring out of every gap it could find. We made our way to the back door, banging on windows and doors as we went, trying to get any response. We didn't wait. We just kicked the back door in. Black smoke rolled out. We screamed for a minute, trying to get an answer, hoping that if anyone was inside, they would follow our voices. With no response, I figured we had to do something. I couldn't just stand outside while people died. I started into the house through the open back door. A few feet in, I dropped to my knees and started crawling. It was too dark to see anything, so I was searching with my hands. My partner grabbed me from behind and held on so I wouldn't get lost. He used his feet to anchor himself to the back door and stretched his six-foot frame into the house while holding onto my feet. I crawled as far as I could, but I was choking badly and there was no response. A minute or so later, my partner started pulling and I followed him back out of the house. When fire arrived, they started working the scene and the experts with the Scott air packs and the Halligan tools made their way in through the back door. I was sitting at the ambulance getting some oxygen, and my partner was getting a bad cut on his forearm taken care of. We just watched the house, waiting for them to start bringing the bodies out. We got lucky that night. The entire house was out of town. No one had been home when the fire started, and a house that would usually have dozens to hundreds of people at it had managed to burn to the ground while empty. And no one, except me and my partner, had gotten hurt. We didn't hesitate to rush into the fire trying to help. Cops don't do that. They charge to the sound of gunfire. They risk their lives every day to save those people that they've never met. Cops don't stand in hallways for an hour while kids are being killed. Except, in Uvalde, Texas, that's exactly what happened. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. On May 24th, 2022, a gunman entered the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde County, Texas, and murdered 19 children and two adult teachers. The police stood by for over an hour hour while the active killer was on the loose in the school and did nothing. That's hard for me to believe, but it's true. And as we learn more about the police response or lack thereof, I personally became more disgusted. That is not what police believe in. That is not what we do. And that is not who we are. Unfortunately, we got to own it. Our profession failed that day. It is the most egregious failure of law enforcement in the United States in my lifetime and arguably the worst failure of our profession in its history. It's easy to point to the individuals, the ones that do horrible things, the ones that end up on the nightly news. They aren't one of us. That's an exception. Don't judge all of us by the actions of a few. 
but 19 officers stood in the hallway of the elementary school while the killer was murdering children and did nothing. That's sickening. And it's on us. It's on our profession. It's on our supervision. It's on our people. And it's on our training. It's our job now to make sure that never, and I mean never, happens again. What went wrong? There are still details coming out in this case, and I'm sure things will change before this episode airs, but let's look at what we do know based on information released by the Texas Department of Public Safety as of June 21st, 2022. At 11.20 a.m., the shooter sends a Facebook message saying that he's going to shoot his grandmother in the head and then shoot up an elementary school. At 11.21 a.m., he sends another message saying that he just shot his grandmother and he's going to an elementary school to shoot it up. Between 11.22 a.m. and 11.27 a.m., the shooter steals his grandmother's car and drives two miles to Robb Elementary School. The grandmother calls 911. At 11.28 a.m., the shooter arrives at the school and wrecks the car in a ditch. He exits the wrecked vehicle and fires three rounds at nearby witnesses who flee. At 11.29 a.m., a teacher from the school calls 911 and reports the crash, as well as noting that the shooter had a gun. At 11.31 a.m., the shooter enters the parking lot and begins shooting at the school building. A school district patrol vehicle enters the school parking lot and drives past the shooter who's hiding between cars. 11.33 a.m., the shooter enters the school through an unlocked door and then enters classroom 111, which is connected to classroom 112. Over 100 rounds are fired between the two classrooms. None of the doors appear locked on the surveillance footage. 11.35 a.m., three Uvalde police officers enter the school through the same door the shooter entered and are met with gunfire. They receive grazing wounds. The three officers retreat. Pete Arredondo, the chief of police for the school district, arrives on scene. He does not have his radio and says he intentionally left it behind because he wanted his hands free and he felt the radio would slow him down. I gotta take a moment here and address this. Pete Arredondo is the chief of the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Department. That means he is the highest ranking officer in that jurisdiction, and he's on scene. He has ultimate responsibility. He is in charge, and he knows that. His decision not to take his radio is not just irresponsible. It's negligent at the highest level. The radio is the ultimate tool of law enforcement. It's everything, and you use it for everything. The chief will use his cell phone to make contact through telephone lines to the Evaldi Police Department, which is much slower than using a police radio, which all agencies have access to and will be able to get immediate updates on. This continues to support the complete negligence and failure of Chief Arredondo at the most basic level. 11.36 a.m., four more officers enter through the same door that the shooter entered the school. An additional four more officers enter through another entrance to the school. The shooter continues to fire as officers approach rooms 111 and 112. While you could argue that the first three officers that entered the school didn't have an opportunity to engage the shooter because they'd been fired upon and had to retreat, you can't make that same statement for the eight officers that entered the school at 11.36 a.m. Active killer training is very clear on this point. You move immediately to the threat and eliminate it. It doesn't matter if you're by yourself or have a partner. In this incident, the shooter was outnumbered 8 to 1, and he was only in the building for 3 minutes. When responding to an active killer scene, time is everything. And this is where, without a doubt, the officers should have taken direct action. 11.40 a.m. 
Chief Arredondo calls the Uvalde Police Department using his cell phone to describe the situation. The shooter can be heard firing in the background. 11.41 a.m., officers on scene indicate that the shooter is barricaded and still shooting. Dispatch asks the officer if the door is locked, and the officer advised that they don't know, but they have a Halligan tool, which is a pry tool used by firemen to open doors and windows. Four more officers enter the school. 11.44 a.m., more police enter the building and hear gunfire. They're shot at and retreat. Chief Arredondo witnesses the gunfire and says he checks the door to the classroom, finding it locked. He then calls, once again, using his cell phone instead of the police radio, for SWAT, snipers, extraction tools, and keys to the building. Officers begin evacuating the elementary school. Here's another area regarding Chief Arredondo that needs to be addressed. The investigation by the Texas Department of Public Safety has shown, based on video surveillance, that Chief Arredondo did not check the classroom door. And further, the classroom door was incapable of being locked from the inside. Is this statement by Chief Arredondo an outright lie? 11.48 a.m., an officer with the Uvalde CISD arrives on scene and tells other officers that his wife is inside and she has been shot. 11.50 a.m., officers advise that people need to clear the hallway and that Chief Arredondo is on scene and in charge. 11.51 a.m., seven more officers arrive and enter through the same door the shooter used to enter the school. One officer has a ballistic shield. 11.56 a.m., body camera footage shows that an officer asks if there are any children inside the classroom. The officer says, if there's kids in there, we need to go in there. Someone responds, whoever is in charge will determine that. Wait, what? Another pause for me to specifically address a point. Up to now, we are getting a picture of incompetence at the command level and an unwillingness to engage the shooter. But what are all of these officers doing standing around? Here is where many people have brought up the chain of command issues and paramilitary structure of police. They like to argue that the chain of command is everything in law enforcement. And since the chief was there, nobody was going to do anything without his say-so. Now, I'll give you that there is a rigid chain of command, and many agencies do adhere very closely to that chain of command. But I was a police supervisor for over 17 years of my career, and I couldn't get guys to put gas in a police car with a direct order. The idea that officers who are properly trained would simply stand by and do nothing while waiting for the chief to give an order, knowing that children were being murdered, is abhorrent to me. To hear an officer willingly disregard what his eyes and ears are telling him just to follow an order goes to show that the problems run very deep in that jurisdiction. This shows that the issues are more than an incompetent chief, but incompetent officers. We see the same thing happen again at 12.01 a.m. A DPS special agent indicates that this is a hostage rescue situation and that officers should, quote, go in, unquote. Someone replies, don't you think we should have a supervisor approve that? At 12.03 p.m., a student calls 911 from inside room 111 and 112. They identify themselves with a whisper. At this point, there are 19 officers stationed in the hallway, and they have two ballistic shields. At 12.04 p.m., police now have a third ballistic shield. At 12.10 p.m., the student calls back and says that multiple people are dead. SWAT arrives on scene. Now, just to catch everyone up here, at 11.33, the shooter enters the school. Officers have been on scene the entire time. By 12.10 p.m., there are 19 officers inside the hallway of the school, right outside rooms 111 and 112. The police know that people have been shot. They also know that there are still victims alive inside the rooms, and the shooter is still actively firing his weapon. They did nothing. 
as I read through this, I become more and more angry with my profession, that we would allow people to be in these positions that are this incompetent, this cowardly. It's shocking. 12.11 p.m., Chief Arredondo requests a master key. 12.13 p.m., the student calls 911 for a third time. They have not released what was said during this call. 12.15 p.m., Border Patrol Tactical Unit arrives on scene. 12.16 p.m., student calls 911 for a fourth time, saying that eight or nine students are still alive. 12.17 p.m., Chief Arredondo tries the keys on a different door. 12.19 p.m., dispatch receives a 911 call from a different student in the classroom. 12.20 p.m., a fourth ballistic shield is brought into the school. 12.21 p.m., the shooter fires his weapon three times in the classroom, where it is known that several people have been shot and that there are still victims alive inside. This entire scenario continues to be a definition of active killer, and yet officers do nothing. 12.24 p.m., Chief Arredondo attempts to communicate with the shooter. 12.32 p.m., the search for keys continues. I remind you, these are keys to an apparent unlocked door. I cannot find words to describe my disgust. 12.36 p.m., a student calls 911, and they try to keep the student quietly on the phone. 12.38 p.m., Chief Arredondo tries to communicate with the shooter again. 12.43 p.m., the shooter fires his gun at the door of the classroom. 12.46 p.m., Chief Arredondo gives his approval to enter the classroom. He says, if y'all are ready to do it, you do it. This is according to transcripts of police body camera footage. That's right. One hour and 13 minutes after entering an active killer scene at an elementary school, the chief of police finally gives his approval to deal with the shooter. This goes against everything we have been teaching about school shootings and active killer situations since the Columbine High School shooting over 23 years ago. 12.50 p.m., a Border Patrol tactical unit officer breaches the classroom and kills the shooter. I have to take a minute and get my anger under control. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y. 360.com. The police have no duty to protect. This statement is legally true and is based on the Supreme Court case of Deshawnee versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services. That case, which was decided in 1989, was based on the government's failure to intervene in a child abuse case. This case was built on in 2011 when a New York City officer stood by and watched a stabbing take place because he was afraid the suspect might have a gun. So the law says that the cops don't have to protect you. But that's the legal precedent. The moral one is more important to me. In the Deshawnee versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services case, Justice Harry Blackman wrote the dissenting opinion. Poor Joshua, victim of repeated attacks by an irresponsible, bullying, cowardly, and intemperate father, and abandoned by respondents who placed him in a dangerous predicament and who knew or learned what was going on and yet did essentially nothing except, as the court revealingly observes, dutifully recorded these incidents in their files. It is a sad commentary upon American life and constitutional principles so full of late of patriotic fervor and proud proclamations about liberty and justice for all that this child, 
Joshua DeShaney, now is assigned to live out the remainder of his life profoundly retarded. Joshua and his mother, as petitioners here, deserve, but now are denied by this court, the opportunity to have the facts of their case considered in light of the constitutional protection that 42 U.S.C. 1983 is meant to provide. While police don't have a legal obligation to intervene, they do have a moral obligation. Fortunately, the vast majority of officers understand this and are willing to give all of themselves to their community. On April 2, 2019, Illinois State Police Trooper Gerald Ellis was heading home after his shift when he noticed a drunk driver traveling on the wrong side of the highway and headed directly towards civilians. Without hesitation, Trooper Ellis maneuvered his vehicle directly in front of the drunk driver and protected the oncoming traffic. Trooper Ellis was killed in the collision. On March 5, 2015, Philadelphia Police Sergeant Robert Wilson III entered a video game store for a security check. While in the store, two armed robbers entered and began robbing the store. Sergeant Wilson exchanged gunfire with the suspects, and over 50 rounds were fired during the gunfight. The robbers fled, and Sergeant Wilson ultimately died of his wounds. No one else in the store was injured. On September 20, 2013, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Officer Rod Bradway responded to a 911 call for help. He arrived on the scene of a domestic violence call in which a woman and young child were being held at gunpoint. When he arrived, he immediately and without hesitation forced entry into the residence and was shot. Officer Bradway continued to struggle with the shooter and placed himself between the shooter and the victims even though he had been mortally wounded. Officer Bradway was shot six more times and even with these fatal wounds returned fire eight times and managed to kill the suspect, saving the woman and her baby. And... On September 11, 2001, 23 officers with the New York City Police Department lost their lives when they ran into the Twin Towers and tried to save as many people as possible before those towers collapsed after the terrorist attacks. This is who we are and why we do the things we do. Seeing those images of officers covered in dust from the collapsing buildings and pulling people to safety, that's why we do the things we do. Reading of officers like Manny Familia of the Worcester Police Department who drowned trying to save a 14-year-old boy. That's why we do the things we do. We do them because if we don't, who will? We do them because it's the right thing to do. We do them because we are police. But they didn't. Maybe it was the training. Active shooter training, or active killer response training, which is the most current title, deals with teaching officers how to respond to very specific types of violence created by someone who is in the active stages of killing people. Statistics show that immediate intervention is necessary to save lives, so training focuses on getting into the fight as fast as possible and recognizing that you will likely get hurt or even killed. The Uvalde CISD had this training just two months prior to the shooting at Robb Elementary. They had eight hours of training on the topic, and it was trained by one of their own officers at the Uvalde CISD. I've spoken before about in-house training and how departments love it, but it's only as good as the experience and training of the instructor. I have no idea what level of experience and training the instructor had, but hopefully it was at least to a basic level of knowledge. Another interesting point about the training is how often do they have it? I mean, they're a school district police department. Their sole reason for being is to protect the schools, and school shootings seem to be one of those things you would be training heavily on. I wonder, are they doing the eight-hour training once a year? Twice a year? Maybe. But they should be doing it once a month, at least. 
I mean, after all, it's the biggest nightmare scenario you could have, and you're the ones that are going to have to deal with it. Maybe it was the bureaucracy. I've touched on the paramilitary nature of police and how the chain of command gets hammered into people's heads. But as I've already pointed out, the chain of command only seems to be followed when the officers can't figure a way around it or when it works to their advantage. Blaming the actions of the officers on chain of command is an easy out. But it might be what happened. Once the chief of police rolls up, everything starts to change. I don't care what's going on, from an active shooter to an argument at a grocery store. The boss walks in and people stop making decisions and start referring to the boss. If you have a good boss, they're not going to let this happen. They're going to make sure their people are properly trained and capable, and then they're going to get out of the way and let them do their jobs. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of good bosses in law enforcement. Unfortunately, there are a lot of micromanagers in law enforcement. You want to know how to know if you work for a micromanager? Don't worry. They'll tell you. They're the ones who will say to you in the first five minutes of meeting them, I'm not a micromanager. Micromanagers are terrified they're going to get in trouble for something one of their people did. Instead of training their people, they make it impossible for them to do their job. They second guess everything. They make everything go past them and they don't allow anyone to make decisions. Micromanagers are the great big roadblock in any business or organization. In law enforcement, they get people killed. When I review the timeline for the Uvalde shooting and see things like, whoever is in charge will determine that, and don't you think we should have a supervisor approve that? It makes me start to think that maybe the departments involved in the incident had a bunch of micromanagers in charge. The best chance for immediate intervention was when those first three officers tried to go in. I'm not sure how much gunfire they took, and they did report grazing injuries, but they were right there and ready to go. Had they pushed through that, one or even all of them might have died, but they would have likely had a dramatic impact on the shooting. There was one more chance to make this work, and that was when the eight officers made their way into the building. This was also at the point where the chief showed up. If those eight officers had forced the fight with the gunman, things would have been dramatically different. But based on the stellar performance, leadership, and decision-making shown by the chief, it's highly likely that he pulled rank and shut those officers down. I wish they'd ignored him. I'm sure they wish they'd ignored him as well. All of the responding officers after that ran into a critical mass of indecision, defensive posture, and inaction. This critical mass would go a long way to shutting down any independent action that the newer officers would want to make. The chief is there. There are eight other officers lined up in the hallway. They must know something I don't. That's the kind of thinking that makes you pause and follow the chain of command. The chief is there and he is in charge. Let's wait and see what the chief wants done. And now you're stuck, just like the rest of them. And that is why you end up with 19 officers waiting in the hallway while children are being murdered. On June 9th, 2022, Chief Arredondo doubled down on stupid when he tried to defend his actions. He should have remembered his Miranda warnings. You have the right to remain silent. Use it. But he said he did everything he could to get into the room. That the lack of a key to unlock the door, which the Texas Department of Public Safety said was unlocked and couldn't be locked, is what caused the delay. Well, they had a Halligan tool. That would have helped them work the door. The room has windows. So the door isn't the only way in. What other methods did they use to try and make entry? At this point, it doesn't appear that they did anything. Chief Pete Arredondo told the Texas Tribune in a news report that he did not consider himself to be the commanding officer on the scene that day. He was the chief of police, 
This is the most ridiculous statement I have ever heard from a law enforcement administrator. That is his jurisdiction. It's his school. It's his scene. He knows that. Chief Arandondo says that he was willing to sacrifice himself to save those children, and he tried but couldn't get inside the room. Except that when he finally gave the order to enter, he didn't go inside the classroom with the other officers. He didn't even send his own people. Border Patrol had to make the entry. His statements only show a man desperately trying to defend actions that are indefensible. We're still waiting for more answers on the Uvalde shooting. I still have a lot of questions. Typically, I like to wait until everything is settled and all the facts are in front of us. But this one is just impossible to avoid. We must do better. We must improve as a profession. We must improve our training. We must improve our supervision. We must encourage our officers to be problem solvers and independent thinkers. And we must never let something like this happen again. I have kicked down barricaded doors. I have chased criminals down dark alleys. I have crawled into burning houses and I have jumped into frozen ponds. I have done dangerous things while dangerous people tried to kill me. And I did it all for the love of those people I serve. And so do you. Don't let Uvalde define us. Make sure it never happens again. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 